0: You're now listening to Sage on Sage News Live. All right, All right we're here and this is Sage and I'm uh, here we are at Sage News and I have a special guest on today that I actually reached out to after reading an article, but we're going to get into that a little bit later. And I shot out a tweet and I just said, you know what, I'll hope for the best. And she responded back and she said, yeah, let's do it. I'm like, yes. So I'd like to introduce Amber Beag. Amber, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure. So basically, if you wouldn't mind, I kind of want to just now I realize that you work for Warm Springs Consulting, which is basically if you kind of want to go into that and what your background is and stuff like that so that my uh, fans can can know about it, that'd be great.
1: Um, so I'm in the business of making the world a better place. And I assert that's done through um, balancing care for people, planet and profit for companies. So. Um, We call it triple bottom line economics, and we do a lot of analysis looking at ways in which um, companies and governments can be more efficient. Um, Mm -hmm. So in many ways, it's actually more of an efficiency problem. Um, But we have an interdisciplinary team of um, engineers, analysts. Um, My background is in economics and then also environmental science, as well as um, Spanish literature. and then um, I'm also just a, a history buff. And then we also have, you know, folks like one of our engineers actually has a history background. And then mm-hmm. our um, our lead strategist, she's got a law and chemistry background. She actually started out. My business partner started out as a nuclear chemist. And mm-hmm. you know, then went to law school and did environmental law, and then worked um, for large consulting firms. And then um, we have, you know, our interdisciplinary team really looks at problems from a bunch of different angles and so we use the both the tools of economics and engineering but also um human-centered design so we look at real world problems through people's eyes and our job is to actually listen more than anything else and um really tackle tough problems so we have been doing a lot of work lately in the mining sector which i think is very interesting Mm -hmm. Um, i could keep digging forever in, in this topic i think Um, And it's um, it is an endlessly interesting problem. One of the reasons we are looking at mining um, is because it is so controversial. So I have no fear of tackling controversial topics. But um, the mining sector is expected to grow six times over the next 20 years to accommodate the increase in demand for renewable energy. So when we think about our current mining operations and we think about, wow, we're going to see six times that in mining. The sector is growing rapidly. Um, there is a lot of opportunity for innovation. Um, there hasn't been much changes in the last forty years in mining. In truth, so,
0: yeah. So, so ex- that's perfect. So, like, when you say mining, it's like because right now, uh, rare earth minerals is the type of mining you're talking about. Also, correct in regards to solar panels, because we and, and people are going to say, well, mining. I thought, you know, are we digging for coal? What are we digging for? But it's actually stuff to be able to to use um, in solar yeah. panels and things like that. Correct.
1: I'm talking about copper, nickel, cobalt, um, gold, um, silver. Um, We are working right now. One of our biggest projects is with a large copper mine, and we're doing a lot of work for them. Um, They are trying to figure out how to um, reduce their greenhouse gas emissions because of their investor mandate, and they are looking at um, a full electrification of all their main haulage systems and hauling equipment. They've already figured out how to electrify um, their shovels. So with the, the work that we've been doing and the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that they'll be able to save, um, that's not actually what speaks to the project. There's three criteria. One is economically valuable to do do something different. Right. And that answer is yes. Um, right now we're looking at a life of mine to. Be, you know, savings to the tune of $800 million over the next 20 years. So $800 million is a lot for one company to save in terms of fuel switching from diesel Mm -hmm. to electricity. Um, the second one is, is it, um, does it de-risk the project? What are the risks, the operational and technical risks associated with it? How does it change your operational practices? Um, with a lot of the, um, electric equipment we're looking at, um, it reduces the number of operators you need to operate that equipment. So actually improves safety, reduces man hours. Um, for big projects where you have this um, boom and bust cycle like you do in mining companies, right. um, adding a bunch of new jobs that will then go away in 10 to 15 years is not actually a benefit to a community. Um, it does something really damaging to a community. So really what you want is steady long term jobs that don't have these huge cycles in the number of employees required on site.
0: Right. So, and- And just so I can explain that to people real quick is because what happens is you get a boom town and then schools come in, people come in, people have kids thinking they're going to have these jobs and then the jobs end. And now you have these kids in schools that have to be out of place and reschooled and relocated.
1: Yeah. So I I grew up in a mining town um, and I was in high school when the mines um, Mm. started their shutting down. So I grew up in um, Southwest New Mexico um, in a town called Silver City near the Chino Copper Mine. And I remember when, um, our high school declined in you know, number of students. Um, we had um, major, major changes in you know, people's jobs. You know, the folks that stayed that were from that town who got jobs in the mine, those jobs went from mining jobs at you know, $25 an hour to Walmart at $5 an hour, right? right? So that changes your, your economy. Um, you had you know, people who had good jobs that left to go to the next mine. Right? Mm-hmm. right. And so then, you know, I, I lost friends and um and those things change pretty significantly. So that's what you see in boom and bust cycles. Now, um, my little town had a good, strong arts um community and a lot of people had been there for a long time. So it fared relatively well compared to some of the other towns that you now see as these, you know, essentially ghost towns. And, right. um And so. When you have those big boom, bust cycles, it's not a sustainable way to develop an economic, um, economic well-being for a community or a region.
0: Right. And that, and that's, uh, and we're seeing, you, you see that a lot now when you'll see like mines go down or, you know, uh, things like that. And they're like, okay, now what do I do? And, and the, the thing was, we'll learn to code. Right. And it's like, well, what if we could create things that we don't have to have yeah. that sudden switch right. for long-term. Right. And, and that's, right. that's definitely a good way yeah. to look at it, so. Yeah,
1: so there's a lot of things you can do also. I mean, I I, I don't want to get into all of this. We could talk about this, but when we look at going back to your initial question, which is around what are the systems drivers, right, mm-hmm. for um, this mandate for growth? And I think we're stumbling up against some of these um, challenges we're seeing, because right now, one of my biggest clients is struggling with their primary problem being finding enough workers to fill the jobs that are needed. Yes, and everybody is understaffed, and and so what I'm seeing is the human side of our resource limits,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: compared to the artificial mandate for growth, which is driven by fractional reserve banking and a debt-backed currency.
0: Right. So let me get in this because that's I want to kind of drill into this. It's going to be one of those topics, and that, that also do so. A big thing in regards to renewable energy, obviously, is climate change. Agree or disagree? You know, like I said, is is not the, what I want to kind of talk about here, but I kind of wanted to talk about even if you don't believe in climate change, right? The fact that the technology that it is pushing, the, the ingenuity. And this is what government. A lot of times, what governments will also do is out of problems, out of you know situations, and and then you know emergencies smart people come together to create extremely smart things. And it's, it it drives people to create ingenuity, better technology, and which pushes our, uh, us as society and humans further and further. So like I said, there's, um, in regards to the climate change, we believe it or not, what it is doing is pushing technology to that next level. Right. Absolutely. That's a big aspect of what you guys do is, is explain how that is in that happens. Correct
1: yeah absolutely and and you know climate change the climate change debate becomes less relevant when you actually look at it from a pure economic stance and a total life cycle cost stance you know per kilowatt hour over a 20-year period um right now solar is the cheapest form of energy and this is you know a number of studies have been done around this in fact our very conservative um utility here in idaho just did an independent study and arrive at the conclusion in terms of their integrated resource plan for the next 20 years that the cheapest form of energy will be solar for them and is solar. So we're looking at wholesale rates at two cents a kilowatt hour. That's cheap.
0: Yeah. No, and, right.
1: yeah and so I, you know, I just, you know, I'm regardless of how you stand on climate change, there's a lot of value and benefit to using solar. And, You know big hydro is essentially just giant batteries that's what we're looking at It's giant batteries and they're expensive batteries and if you compare a cost per megawatt hour of um, a dam versus a cost per megawatt hour of these new big flow batteries that do require minerals not the rare earth minerals like the smaller batteries but these big flow batteries that are the um, liquid metal batteries um you're getting really good cost per kilowatt hour so i would just say Let's let's actually do a better job at um, doing better costing and what I would call levelized cost of energy calculations that include the total life cycle cost, including the cost of mining and also those impacts. Because a lot of times what we do is we'll price something based on what the market will tolerate rather than the true cost of the thing. And we don't actually account for those.
0: Yeah, we. We're, I can end up talking to you for hours just so you know. All right, so <laughs> – Basically, <laughs> and, and, and this is something that, like I said, in, in regards to that and that in that technology and stuff. Now, some people are going to say, I, I know I'm just going to throw it out there. Some people are going to say, well, right now, that solar panel can't, that solar power can't handle what we can, what we need. Uh, who, who says that? <laughs> that? That's one of the arguments is basically is that solar oh. panel can't handle what they need. So. Even to that aspect, you would say, well, technology is getting better and better, and this is why we drive technology to make things better, right? And This is why we're doing yeah. the mining and we're doing the technology and we're pushing that. But from that technology also comes another driver, which is the economics portion of it, right? So you have yeah. the technology to make it better, even if it didn't, let's say. You're building technology to make it better by pushing ourselves because that's what we do. But the the financial and the economic, and and one of the reasons why I I did bring you on was as I read your, let's say, a blog article on your site that was called the metabolic currency or the energy dollar, basically, is how I, you know, make some people understand. Would you mind kind of diving into that aspect from your point of view? And and that was um, another aspect of this, what I believe is a push for this, is that as an outcome also.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So... I, it's an interesting conversation because um when i first started talking about it i actually met up with a guy who's um who is an early blockchain investor and um i proposed you know i was like hey i've got this idea when do you what do you think about it And he's you know very smart individual and he suddenly gets really panicked he's like who's following you <laughs> <laughs> i mean he was afraid of you know me and him being assassinated in that moment and i mm-hmm. i i have less fear about that because i don't i don't have. I' not somebody who um, people in places of um, you know government decisions or power actually are paying attention to there's there's better ways to discredit me than than killing me um in fact and if anything you know me dying would probably evangelize my work more um, right. so I've run this idea by a number of economists who aren't as afraid as the first guy was, but you know I've been thinking on this idea for more than a decade and essentially, it comes down to this. We live in on a planet that receives a certain amount of energy from the sun every day, that planet metabolizes that energy it absorbs that energy, and it stores it in the ground primarily. And there's a whole bunch of other systems that come into play. And there's a lot more complexity, but I'm creating a simplified, high level, abstracted view of the metabolic system of the planet, which is the earth through photosynthesis essentially absorbs energy Mm -hmm. humans actually can capture a small portion of that through solar panels um we also capture you know wind is essentially solar energy and i don't want to get into all of that and solar energy really is nuclear energy but we're going to talk about that later but um we absorb all of this energy Mm -hmm. and, and it gets stored in the ground so every time we pull up fossil fuels all we're doing is basically pulling historic solar energy out yeah. of the ground, and bringing it to the surface. Um, and then some people wonder why we're warming up the planet. And yes, there's a lot more complexity there. But right, there's a lot of energy that has been pulled out of the ground in terms of fossil fuels. And we have been pulling that historic solar energy out of the ground and putting it on the surface of the planet. Now, there is energy that comes into the planet every day. And that grows in a linear Model. So this is a linear, basically linear math versus exponential. Now, in contrast, we have um, a currency system that is based on debt with interest. So for anybody who's not familiar with how currency is created. Yes, the Treasury does issue Treasury bonds and prints money, but that's not that's a small portion of the amount of money that's in circulation that is created really how money gets created is through fractional reserve banking which is through banks issuing debt loans and banks are legally allowed to loan out nine times what they have on reserve which means that for every hundred dollars they have they can loan out nine hundred dollars right and that nine hundred dollars has an interest rate so those loans have to be repaid with more money Mm -hmm. but in addition to that money that they were um that they loaned out they have to be repaid with more money this is actually what is the true driver of inflation is, right. that, is that we have what we call an exponential growth rate. Anytime you have an exponent or an interest rate, right, mm-hmm. you actually have an exponential growth curve, which looks like a J. So let's see if we can get, you know, a J curve. Gotcha. And we know that a J curve um, in mathematics, you never have a J curve. It's always a bell curve what goes up must come down. Right. In terms of currency, you would actually have at its point of close to collapse, and we've seen other currency collapses in other countries like Brazil and Argentina, mm-hmm. you see inflationary cycles. So you see rapid inflation and deflation, rapid inflation and deflation. Right. And then you lose value and faith in that currency, people start turning to other mediums of exchange in The recent years, we've seen cryptocurrencies take huge drives up. Um, I suspect that when everything levels out, we're going to see a number of currencies people use for different reasons. I don't think that we're going to see a one currency dominant world. I think we're going to see a diversity of currencies that work for different purposes and some that work for other purposes. So I propose that if we wanted to have a sustainable economic model that could last for hundreds of thousands of years, we have to peg it to the rate of energy coming into the planet, the metabolic rate of the planet, it has to be linear growth, we can have economic growth, and you can have short little variances in, you know, short spurts of, um, you know, small j curves within your growth, right, you can have these like, it's not a straight line, it's a bubbly line like this. Mm -hmm. there'll be you know months where you have like oops growth 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 but your overall growth has to be linear that line has to be a linear growth in order for it to be truly sustainable for the economic system to sustain over time because otherwise you run into what you call the limits the resource limits the energy resource limits of the planet which includes people So when you start running into problems where you can't, you don't have enough workforce, you have bumped into one of those natural resource limits.
0: Got it. So, and and I did, I talked about this a little bit in a video after reading your article is I kind of explained everything as um, stored energy, you know, Uh, and I talked about food. You know, if I were to ask somebody to go out and mow my lawn, the base of that currency exchange would be the amount of time times the amount of energy to push the lawnmower, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So then when I said, well, you know, this rice has is energy. And then I went down to the, you know, gold and silver coins that we use That's stored energy. You know, it's basically but it's not efficient. Right. It's not efficient. It's really,
1: really inefficient. However, when you look at the comparable value of gold compared to Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is like 15 times the energy consumption than gold. Right. Bitcoin has that much times the energy for current gold mining operations for its equivalent value in terms of its footprint for mining, essentially.
0: So I may or may not be wrong. I'm throwing this out here. But for me, a lot of the, let's say, climate change and and either um, um, what I'm going to say, one of the reasons also for this push, I believe, is if they're trying to push this way, the most efficient way to have energy would be, and this is why I explained that some people say, well, solar panels aren't there yet. Well, battery technology is going to get better and better and better. But if your most efficient way to transfer energy would be, a ba- would be a battery, that means the best way to hold currency, if currency is energy, would be battery. Am, am I- or,
1: or another highly density, pu- high dense fuel. So um, right. I would look, so like, for example, hydrogen actually is a great store of energy and it's actually the energy density is really good per you know the the weight the energy amount amount of energy per weight um hydrogen is an excellent way to store energy um if i were to design the most efficient transportation system it would be a high electric hydrogen um, hybrid locomotive on rails would be the most efficient way for us to get around right now
0: right and that, that and that's the other one too because for me if you're gonna be, if, and this is where I, and it's weird because I start to, I'm, I'm very good at connecting dots, right? So I'm connecting a bunch of these dots to see if I can get, and as I see the push towards renewable energies and that that incentive for private companies from government, which is a big driver of of technology and innovation, you see that innovation to push that way. Um, it At this point now, it, and you also talk about the um, the power company, right? So the power company, yeah. If you want to explain that, basically, how 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 would I how am I going to get paid for this? How how does this work? Um, so,
1: in the metabolic currency model for an electricity based currency, it would essentially be a way for utilities to create almost like a prepaid cell phone card or a prepaid phone card, right? So, back when I was in my early twenties, I traveled the world and I had prepaid phone cards. Well, I could sell that prepaid phone card to somebody else for the value of those minutes, right, using that phone card. Mm-hmm. So there's a few utilities that use prepaid electricity. One is the um, Salt River Project in Phoenix. So for to solve some of the billing issues with their lower income um, customers, they set up a prepaid um, electric bill where you would basically go and buy, it a, buy a card, swipe it at your meter, and then you would get, you know, how many kilowatt hours you had basically purchased ahead of time. Well, in this model, any surplus could be traded with anybody else on the same on the same grid. So it becomes like a um, basically micro. Um, micro energy trading it would be you know basically on a localized scale what enron was um, trying to do but failed because there was too much corruption and, and also we didn't have good accountability systems there right um but you know when you think about it actually the enron model was not a bad model for figuring out optimal pricing for energy um there was some bad decisions that were made and also there we just it was the first time we'd really seen something like that I mean, we've been seeing, commodities trading is a really good example of this as well, but nobody has seen electricity as a commodity really until um, that point. The challenge with electricity as a commodity and perhaps the good thing about it, which is why it makes it to be a really good um, backing for a currency, is that it is hard to store. You don't wanna hoard it, you don't wanna hold on to it. Anything that you can store easily um, Mm -hmm. actually doesn't become a good medium of exchange. Anything that if you store it, it lose value, loses value like the U.S. dollar because of inflation, it actually becomes a really good medium for exchange. You want to exchange it so it, it inspires that exchange and creates robustness in an economy. Um, Bitcoin yeah. is really easy to hold on to. People are hedging with it. They're gambling with it. It is not a valuable, valuable or useful tool for exchange. It's a store of value rather than an exchange, um, a tool for exchange.
0: Okay. And so. I- let me just explain this real quick so everybody understands this because yeah. some of this is okay. So, uh, so everybody understands it's like I, I talk about this in regards to startups. Startups get loans and then they stick the money in the bank, but that's dead money. You want to keep that money basically moving. And as long as that keeps moving, then we, everything's flowing. And that's how money works. Money works very well when it's moving. When it's sitting still, it's dead money. It's not making anything, it's not driving anything. And that's kind of what, what she's talking about. I might be, I lose your camera. I got back. There, yes, we're back. Yep. Yeah, I'm
1: sorry. Okay,
0: no problem. Um, so that basic movement of money is what she's talking about, and you don't want dead money just sitting there. So, electricity, because you can't store it for long periods of time, it would keep moving, and this would allow people to keep spending basically. Oh, I lose you again.
1: Oh, I'm here. Sorry. Yep. Okay,
0: okay, so go ahead.
1: Um, I Catch me up on where you were. So repeat that question
0: again. You were talking about the Enron system, but energy is even better because the movement of that is, is hard to store it for long periods because of batteries and things like that, which makes economies and, you know, better because you're moving money rather than just hoarding it or keeping it and things like that. Exactly. What was the Enron system? If you don't mind me, what was the Enron system?
1: So it was um, energy trading. So basically you had um, essentially it was like creating energy futures, so it was a commodities trading scheme across state lines for energy to create um, basically um, market-based pricing for electricity. What mm. ended up happening was um, was that Enron itself um, did some manipulations on their books, so they actually lied, um, and so hence Sarbanes Oxley became um, a law. So Enron lied on their books. Um, the CEO and the CFO both cooked the books and um mm. that's why they went to prison um and there was a few other folks that joined them but essentially what what happened was was that they would um they were hoarding they were basically doing price manipulation by um creating artificial shortages of energy which caused major blackouts during summer months in certain areas of California in which I believe certain people died. I don't remember all the details. It was right. like, and I can look it long up. Oh. enough, yeah. And, and you could probably verify all of this. Um, so I'm just going off of what I remember and I don't have a whole clear picture on everything. And this is, you know, a class on uh, accounting and business school um, that we did a case study in Enron. So that's, um, um, so that's where, you know, I'm pulling right. from 15 years ago of uh, an accounting right. class memory. Yeah, yeah.
0: I don't mean to put you on the spot there, but you meant, yeah, you meant No it. worries. So, and then after that, in regards to that, the business, you were talking about the the, the calling card and I do remember those also. Um, I, I remember using those, uh, the calling card type thing. So basically it would be like, it, let's say I had solar panels on the top on my house, right? And I used $200 worth of electricity, but I produced $400 worth of, so I now have a $200 surplus. However yes. the means would be, either you know, phone or whatever, I could go to the grocery store and spend two hundred and pay. Here's my two hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. But that would have been the energy access that I received from the solar panels on my roof. Is that exactly kind of how that yep. would work?
1: Yeah. Anybody oh. who's on your grid would be able to take that. Now they would could choose to take it or not. They would say, actually, I have plenty, I don't need it. I'd rather have dollars, similar to where we are with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. So, you know, sometimes, you know, with my babysitter, I paid her. Early on in um, in dollars, or I could pay her in cryptocurrencies. Um, if you use mm. any of the um, you know app-based payment systems, a lot of them now have cryptocurrency options. PayPal yeah. does, for example. Um, so it would be similar to managing essentially your um, your energy account balance on your phone or on your computer, and then being being able to use that to trade essentially um a contract for kilowatt hours that is redeemable with the utility so at scale you know here's some big complications of this idea one is you know do you really want um the utilities to become the banks do you really want the FERC to become the fed these are big things that you know become mm-hmm. um questions Um, or the FERC becomes SEC. You know, I don't know yet what this looks like at scale. This is an idea that I think would require um, a really smart and amazing team of people to essentially develop this into something real. But what I did do, you know, because I don't like just to let an idea sit, because I'm also not just an ideas person, I'm a practical person. Um, A buddy of mine and I, he's a blockchain developer, and he and I were thinking through, well, how would this actually work? if you were to create these these transactions these microtransactions between the customer and the utility and between customers and how does this get modeled so we we actually organized a group of people we played a game we actually all sat down and and played with um my kid had this you know these coins that represented a kilowatt so we used these coins to represent a kilowatt hour like pirate mm-hmm. um token so we used those yeah. and we had all these scenarios where you know, each month we had you know, our certain amount of energy. Somebody was had solar panels on their roof and some, we had all these different scenarios to see how the economic distribution went. So we played it as a game for a day. And then we went through multiple rounds and we got to see how the balance sheet looked for everybody. Um, and that was an interesting experiment. Um, we learned a lot. And then we developed a validation protocol for validating transactions that reduces, that's basically significantly less energy than what you would see um, on an Ethereum or or um, you know basically any of the blockchain networks that we have right now. So mm-hmm. what we did was we actually recently got a patent for this, um, it's a nested validation protocol that would essentially, re- make it so that it's um it's just a proof of uh, basically proof of stake protocol but instead of having everybody on the network validate that timestamp stamp or that um that moment in time where the transaction happened you you have um you have to use meters and you have to use these double meters and systems which a lot of utilities are doing to that to verify a lot of these small energy transactions um
0: yeah.
1: but you can use something as small as a, as a raspberry pi and we've tested this And then you actually have cohorts um, of, you have cohorts of nodes that then validate a transaction that goes up to a bigger cohort as a nested validation. So it's almost like you're using the basics of fractal mathematics to be able to simplify and reduce the amount of energy and computer processing power in um, establishing a blockchain network.
0: So basically what you're doing is eventually optimizing as much as you can to to make it the least amount of energy to get to what you want. Through through this process, well, because I even thought of it. Some of the stuff I've even, like I said, is I thought to myself, okay, if you've got you've got people working next to, let's say, robots, robotic arms, robotic this, robotic that, for you to create a, it's almost like then you almost create want to create a currency that both systems can now be taxed and both systems can now operate on. So if I was gonna, how does the robot? What does the robot want? Well, they don't want gold coins; they want energy. You see what I'm saying? So at some point. It's like, is this a does this become almost a consistent flow? Because as more and more, ro- let's say, robotic arms and things like that come into play for automotive, do, is that well, more of? Let's an- let's let's
1: let's back up, and I, I hate mm-hmm. to be um, simplistic in this, but no, I mean, when on. we think about a when we think about a corporation, I think you're confusing um, so human beings in a industrial process are not actually considered human beings. Robots and humans are actually seen as the same cog in that system. And I would say I define a robot as an automaton, essentially um, an algorithm that has a purpose, right? Mm -hmm. that doesn't have agency to make decisions that operate outside of its purpose. So within that definition, a corporation is a robot. A corporation is an automaton with its purpose to maximize value for shareholders, maximize profit for shareholders. So now in our current legal definition of a corporation, corporation's purpose is to maximize profit for shareholders. Now we could change it to create value, right? Instead of profit, but it is currently maximize profit for shareholders. That is by definition, an automaton. Now, any cog in that system that does not fulfill on that purpose is a machine or a tool used to fulfill on that purpose, whether it be a human being or a mechanical, um, mechanical arm. Right. So, right. so when I think about you know, the difference between a human being and a mechanical arm, they have different cost inputs and um, product productivity, revenue-related productivity, Per a certain unit per hour or per cost input, right? So you have your return on investment. And that's how um, a corporation sees the um, component parts, either human mm-hmm. or non-human, within that system. And so that's how I look at, you know, that's how my understanding of um, the world in terms of um, automatons and um, companies are, right? And they have different inputs and outputs. Now, in the world where we are human, we have different relationships to these systems, right? Correct. We have both the investor relationship, we also have both the employee or the component part relationship, or we have the third party um, affected part for perhaps somebody who's living downstream from a company that's um, disobeying orders and dumping arsenic right into their drinking water source, right? So like, we have all these different, relationships to um the robots that essentially run the world and um and i i don't have any judgment about that so i just want to say like i'm not making a judgment call about it i'm just stating what's so and
0: oh, um, and, and i think yeah. you're not you're not saying right or wrong what you're saying is
1: Okay, well, in my whole theory on corporations, which is kind of funny because, you know, I'm I'm definitely a business person. I work in corporations. This is what I do. I own a company. I've invested in corporations. But I think one of there's a few core system flaws. One is that we um, corporations are robots, Um, right? And we have to remember that if we I think a lot of the folks in the um, left and environmental community think of corporations as people and therefore assign morality to corporations, which I think is ridiculous because corporations don't have morality. They have algorithms. Those are, that's, those are not moral decisions. So we, a lot of people approach um, the executives at corporations and cast blame at those executives. I also think that's misguided because those executives are just tools in a machine.
0: Got it. And so,
1: Yes, they they sometimes can have decision making power and there can be change, but the change only comes when you change the rules and the purpose of a corporation is the only way in which you can actually change that. And that's driven from shareholders.
0: Got it. Okay. So in regards to that aspect then, they're all robots. Uh, Now, obviously, humans need food energy, (laughs) arms need electrical energy, but from that aspect, then, as we move more, because you even mentioned there's a shortage of people and stuff like that, people are, uh, companies are going to look more towards um, energy. Automation, yeah. Automation, that's a good word, perfect. Automation type things, which is going to require more and more energy. Right. And even as we move into countries like Africa and we start to go into countries where they didn't have this, you know, enough energy, because even during uh, Mao, one of the, Mao's biggest things is he wanted to be, make steel. And then he went to Japan. He's like, oh, sell me a steel plant. And then he brought it over. And then he's like, oh, man, I don't have the energy. Went back to Japan, and said, OK, I need an energy plant. And he basically brought mm-hmm. back power because he that was the big thing to drive things is when countries get energy, they can accomplish things. They can build things. They can do manufacturing and stuff. So
1: yeah.
0: In regards to renewable and, and, and that, that energy dollar in, into the business aspect, where does that kind of fall, if that makes sense? Um, like-
1: yeah. I mean, you can actually look at a business's operational efficiency in their you know, revenue per um, kilowatt hour consumption. And actually, carbon footprinting is a really good measure of that. You can actually look at how efficient a company is by measuring their greenhouse gas emissions. And this goes back to the idea of if you want to safeguard your investment, you want the most efficient company that's operating with the least amount of waste as possible in order to have a really good return on investment. And so that's why actually a lot of people are using carbon accounting as that standard because it is a measure of that efficiency.
0: Okay. Now that makes sense because basically what you're saying is if you can be efficient on your energy consumption, you can, that's a good point to be efficient on everything else. Cause that's going to be one of and, your most yeah. expensive things. And,
1: And greenhouse gas emissions is one of those um, measures of energy consumption that crosses all the different types of energy units, right, ranging from, you know, um, electricity to fuel consumption to um, your, um, you know, I would say, like commodities, as well as agricultural, um, you know, photosynthesis.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So let me ask this in regards to your game that you played with the energy dollar, how did mm-hmm. that end? How did that go? Um, the outcome, what was your opinion?
1: My outcome was that it actually creates a really fair system, <laughs> which was okay. interesting, right? Like you don't have, you had, you know, people who produce energy ended up with more. So it actually incentivizes distributed generation of electricity. Hence going back to your conversation is that when you actually back currency by energy, everybody wants to be basically mining gold or producing kilowatt hours, which in many ways achieves a lot of the bigger goals that we're looking for, which is a more um, efficient way of producing energy. Um, And I would assert that decentralized, um, you know, or distributed generation has a lot of efficiencies. We are actually getting ready to embark on a study um, coming up to look at that in more detail with our engineering team. And then we're bringing in some really smart economists and um, utility engineers to evaluate the relative cost of distributed energy um, for this region compared to the centralized energy produced by the utilities.
0: So because basically what you're, and if I can produce, obviously I cannot build a nuclear power plant on my property. I could, but that uh, might not be so efficient. But I can put up solar panels, right? I can put up, mm-hmm. um, you know, that type I like could try. Let's say I could try to build a nuclear one. It wouldn't work. But it's putting up solar panels and being a part of the system, if that currency is there, it it incentivizes me to saying, well, I want in. I want in. Yeah, you know, totally. I want to be the jet yeah. plant. You know, next thing you know, there's oil on my property. And I'm in, you know, Beverly Hills. But there's there's sun on my right. property. You know, I've got a sunny yeah. spot. Right.
1: Which begs to, you know, start asking the question, once people have, you know, once everybody starts having a way to have passive income, and it also then it also there's also challenges with people who don't own their own homes, right? You have, right. Um, you know, it becomes a way in which people who are already wealthy become wealthier and then no longer re- are required to work. But we're also in a world where automation has created, um, a certain type of job that only humans can fill right service jobs and those tend to be low wage jobs or you have what i would call intellectually creative jobs the jobs that um, automated systems aren't good at um, like inventing something new and Mm -hmm. so you have this big divide right now that's happening within you know our our economy and, and it's very much a class divide and i would say that there have been systems that have kept people in certain places Um, And it's not necessarily intentional. It's um, the way systems were established. Now, some people argue that, you know, there's um, racism because racists have designed the systems. I would argue that those systems are designed, um, were designed a long time ago with certain cultural assumptions that haven't really changed. Um, So, you know, I went to Brazil and it was one of the few places, well, Rio de Janeiro was one of the few places where your race was not a determiner of your economic class. And it was fascinating. And It was a very different feeling than being in, for example, Charleston, South Carolina. And I've spent time in the South. I have spent time in factories in the South and it's a very different experience than going to factories in the Northwest. Um, and so there's a very big difference in that experience. However, there's a lot of textile manufacturing in the South and it's, um, and then going to Mexico, I would say I'd rather work in Mexico than what I've seen in South Carolina.
0: Mm, got it. So let me ask. Let me ask. So basically, <laughs> I have other questions too, but I'm going to be honest with you. I won't be able to yeah. put this on YouTube, but I've got a podcast on other places to put it. Um, so one of my questions is: So in regards to innovation, innovation, you yeah. would say would be getting rid of more of the middle class jobs.
1: I think that that's what we're going to see is that middle-class does middle-class jobs, um, going by the wayside, which then goes into a question of what is the economic purpose Mm -hmm. of humans, right? Right. What is, what is the economic purpose? And we're seeing the middle-class disappear. It's, it's, it's disappearing. And so then how do we create ways to create, to, um, to enable the middle class from falling, like prevent them from falling into extreme poverty, Um, Mm -hmm. bring those who are in extreme poverty up to a level of comfort that's, you know, livable, because I'm talking globally, not just in the US. And I would say in the US, people are struggling, but globally, you know, more than a quarter of the people are basically starving um we have global systems we are global corporations we are a global world this is just how we operate we pretend that we live in these silos of countries but really when you look at a, at the way the world is run it's run through economic engines that are driven by corporations that are global
0: so let me ask this and and again your opinion obviously as you yeah. let's say we have a ladder right and you have mm-hmm. the ladder and you have like, you know, low, let's say the lower class or, you know, not as, um, haven't either been taught anything or gotten that, you know, um, degree in, in more like a,
1: yeah
0: I can't think of the word, like, a, a, let's say electrician or something like that. But if you get rid of that middle class of that ladder, it becomes very difficult for these people to get, because you're skipping a section now, right? Because people go to yeah. tech school yeah. and stuff to go, well, I want to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Heavy equipment operators are now being, uh, being robotic or, or self-driving, self-driving yes. trucks. Yes. So now what you're doing is causing a gap that they can't reach the top because they don't have the, the, the ability to learn the ladder step up. Is that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I, I would say that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, you know, actually have a friend has a bluegrass band and, uh, their song is called get those robot truckers off the road and it's a hilarious song, but there's a lot of truth in it. Right. Right. And, you know, I grew up in a community where I don't, most people were, um, middle or working class and you know i I knew had friends whose dads were truckers and i grew up in a ranching community and um everybody i knew you know and i just met a cowboy recently we were i was on a road trip and we were stopped at an rv park because we were trying to get back across the the u.s border from canada and um this guy was talking about how you know he's been traveling around trying to find more work as a cowboy and just can't make ends meet as a cowboy Mm. and you know i you know i had there's some sadness for me Right, because we've gone to these automated systems, and I think there's a lot of value that we have um, forgotten in what I would call these traditional, um, traditional work that actually speaks to our soul in certain ways. Right, so you yeah. know I've spent some time with you know folks in the textile industry and the artisanal sheep ranchers and artisanal um, mills versus these big industrial mills. Right the artisanal mills are selling their their products at these really crazy prices and then i had a friend who um started a a work pants for women company and so she pays her workers a really good price um mm-hmm. she manufactures you know 12 ounce duck um women fit car hearts because if, if you're a woman you have tried to wear car hearts it's they don't fit nice. well. and right. so I, I started my my career actually um when i was doing environmental science work and i was um actually did some work in the forestry section and and also worked on trail crews and i you know operated a chainsaw eight hours a day and, and wore car hearts and they don't fit women very well so when i found out about these work pants i was really excited but you know a pair of car hearts are 30 bucks her pants are 140 and but they last you your entire life Right. Did you know that a pair of Levi's, when miners were buying Levi's in, in the 1860s when Levi's started, you know, their company, a pair mm-hmm. of Levi's cost the, the value of a week's wages?
0: No. So if you think about,
1: that. yeah, so a week's <laughs> wages were the cost of a pair of Levi's, but they were going to last you for 10 years, 15 years, right. and you wear them every day. And I think we have gotten into a world where stuff is cheap. And yeah. we dispose of a lot of crap that we don't mm-hmm. need. We get a lot of crap that we don't need. right My God, I mean, think about the sh- the crap that comes from Amazon and you know little toys and trinkets your kids get, and everybody's got these holiday gifts and you know and I'm part of it too and oh, you know there's a part of me that sees this as a a symptom of a sick system mm-hmm. right, and I would assert that these traditional um you know, the taste of beef that comes from the ranch where the rancher took care of that cattle from its birth all the way through its full life is absolutely amazing. That grass-fed beef, and you know, my parents raised beef, so I I grew up on grass-fed beef and it's delicious. And then you get, you know, feedlot beef that's fed corn, that's grain-fed, finished, or grain-finished, right? And it doesn't have the same flavor. And we've been marketed beef that is marbled as a good thing, and it's not. Right. And we have these misconceptions, and we've created these um, industrial mechanisms that are driven by this mandate for economic growth. That's driven by a, just a really dumb math model that was created in um, in you know 1913.
0: Right, with and fresh, the
1: the Federal Reserve Act, so
0: right that's Federal what Reserve I'm based to. on based on debt, which is very difficult if you think about it, it. It it you borrow money to make money to spend money to borrow money to make money to spend money to get more. And most companies run their entire company, pay their payrolls and stuff like this on uh, debt, that on model. like a, right on a debt model. So you're paying employees hoping that you know that employee yeah. will bring money in in you know a couple right. months or so on. And so on. so right. We're actually borrowing against our businesses, against our our employees. We're borrowing against this, and this is why losing employees is always a big deal to try to hire them anew because you've probably borrowed against that employee's yeah. work, and and so on right. and so on. Yeah, but that brings up another good point. Is regards to is is what I've you know, even learned here today is is how corporations, technically, like it or not, does not. It's just the way it is. Look at people. Uh, automation and everything the same as algorithms, all the same. That middle. Yeah. If I was a corporation, if I was my, I would say, well, if the the people that are making the less money aren't the problem, and I can't get rid of the smart the people up here that you know are smart and helping me make money,
1: so the well, middle, even
0: the one that you're kind of yeah. targeting, right? With right, with, and, with, and
1: even even the smart executives, they are just tools in the cog. You know, if an executive doesn't do their job to maximize profit for shareholders, they're removed and replaced with somebody who will.
0: Right. But even if you're looking for automation, your first target unfortunately is that is that middle. Because that's absolutely there's the ones costing you the money that because like I said, but that so, as, a, as a truck driver, I, I went up for, I was a truck I was a truck driver. I moved up, you know, all the way up the ladder to where I am now logistically. That middle prongs of that ladder are important.
1: They are important, but what we need to do, and this is actually what I'm really curious about, yeah. and what I could see as a vision, is that I bet mm-hmm. anything that your dream in life was not to necessarily be a truck driver, was it?
0: No, it was not. It's actually to be law enforcement officer.
1: Right. Okay, so the question I have is, how do we support people in fulfilling what they have as their highest dream and their highest like the most fulfilled purpose, right? And whether or not that takes a different route, but what we don't do, what we don't do well is provide kids who didn't have any other opportunities, who's like, dad did this, or mom did this, other pathways and other examples of ways in which they can engage in the world in a meaningful, personally meaningful and economically valuable way. And I would assert that we need a lot more entrepreneurs we need a lot more business owners. We need a lot more people creating and inventing. And we do not support entrepreneurs very well in the United States. No, we don't. It and is the- really hard. We need a lot more entrepreneurs. And I would say that one of the biggest hurdles, and I've been an entrepreneur for 15 years, one of the biggest hurdles is the lack of affordable health insurance. Mm-hmm. And and so there isn't a, um, in order to be an entrepreneur, in order to have that ability to Go out and actually pursue a dream. You have to have enough of a safety net to do that. Right. So let me. ask You have to know. You have right. to know that you're gonna. If you fail, you're not gonna be living under a bridge and starving. Right. And I was fortunate that I started being an entrepreneur when I was in my mid twenties. That if I failed, I could go live with my parents. Now that would suck, but you know what? I wouldn't be living under the bridge. I wouldn't be starving, and I wouldn't. Um. I wouldn't have failed. Now. There are a lot of people who don't want to be entrepreneurs. That's fine, um, but there's also a lot of creative ways to engage people in having what I would call an ownership stake. Now, Winco is a really good example of this. Do you know Winco grocery stores?
0: Um, I don't. I don't. I've never been. I'm in the East Coast. I'm in Maine, so I'm not sure where okay. they. are.
1: So Winco is a an employee. The one of the largest employee owned companies in the U.S. Okay. And. After 20 years of being a grocery store clerk, guess what? You can retire and have Mm -hmm. a very comfortable life and actually fully retire and raise your kids. I have a pair of friends that their kids are in private school and they just retired from Winco. They started out as, you know, checkers and grocers. Um, There are really good models for these employee owned companies. And I would assert that employee ownership flips that model of what a corporation's purpose is on its head. Mm. David tree, tree, tra- tree, tree Care Company is also one of the largest employee owned companies in the world. They are a 10,000 person company, and they have those middle class jobs of you know, going out and working on trees. And guess what? Their people can retire after 20 years.
0: That's it. And just so you know, cause you probably don't, a lot of my people watch this know my story. My yeah. story is just so you know, it's I, I got to the point when I was driving truck in 2008, I lost everything. I had no money, nothing. Yeah. I had no family, yeah. I had $7, you know, I had behind all my payments yeah. and I dug myself out. Now I own my own business. And I did that cause I was, you're, you're not going to knock me down. I'm coming back. I, I'm, I'm very, I'll work four yeah. o'clock in the morning, 11 o'clock at night. But you bring up a good point is that not knowing, you know, not every, that, that, I wanted to own my own business, so let me ask this, and this is a great conversation. Would you is replacing the, let's say, the middle class that's being, you know, let's phased out, replacing that middle class with anti businesses? That you know now that that point is looking to say, okay, look, I, I'm not going to go to this level, but I'm going to start here. It is almost that almost seems like a, a employee based. That's like you're talking about saying that middle class is now looking, look, if you're going to go to this level, start your own. So now you're educating people. So now what you're doing is you're saying, okay, rather than it be a middle class that you might be able to make the step up, you might not or whatever, but you can start your own business. So would creating more, um, teaching on how to start your own business and be your own entrepreneur, would that be a better way? Cause then that those people can then say, okay, now I know how, what I need. Now I can train somebody below me to come up with me and partner with me. Is that an angle? To, so now you're at. You're, of course, you're teaching kids. That's a good thing. But now, so the education. I think start, we need to teach
1: kids about money. We fail in the United States to teach kids about money. It 100%. we suck at it. And if we started teaching kids about money starting in elementary school, and every math class was about money, guess what? We would have a very yeah. different type of economy.
0: Yeah. So. But it, we
1: don't because we want economic slavery. So we keep certain people misinformed and ill-informed about money because we do have economic slavery. We keep people in a place where they don't have other options.
0: Yeah. See, this is this is actually good. This is good. This right here is what we need. This, this right here. This is actually I lost you. Um, I think that's that's an you got an excellent point because like I said, that middle class is going away. If you could replace that with like you said, more entrepreneurs, more people in industry. And then from that point, now you're those people are filling the middle class gap, but they're also helping push the lower class into their levels. And then eventually this person could say, Okay, this is your company now, and then that person's stepping up and growing. Oh, I got to let you go.
1: No, they're just letting me know that they're um, getting started on the meeting shortly. We have a a staff meeting. So I do need to wrap it up in a few minutes. We could probably keep talking forever. This is super fun. This
0: this, this actually is. And I I, real quick. So yeah, let's, um, on that note, you're right. And and healthcare is a monstrous thing that keeps people nervous for taking that next step. To be able to say, well, Mm -hmm. I'm going to stay here. Even though if they had that opportunity, they could move up and create their own business and be something extremely in, in productive and ingenuity and learning how to do patents and things like right. that.
1: Right. That's
0: exactly. This yeah. Is, this is fantastic. So let's do this. Uh, let me, let's wrap it up. Uh, so I, on that note, is there anything you, you'd like to finish? Because I, I think I'm going to be uh, reaching out to you a couple more times if you wouldn't mind. And yeah. I, I love finished. this. This is fun. Yeah. So, yeah. so if there's it. anything to uh, kind of wrap up where we're at and in regards to this whole thing, it's, it's we've kind of been all over the place, but it's been a good time. So.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people have asked me, you know, I have friends always try to guess where my political leaning is. And um, and the truth is, is I don't actually necessarily align to a political party. I just yeah. I can't. Um, so I, you know, I make up my own mind based on certain things. And I think that um, occasionally we find people with high integrity that want to serve in public office. And mm-hmm. when I meet those individuals and I really get to see that um, where their words and their actions and their intentions all align um, then i usually will vote for them but otherwise i i tend to um, i tend to vote for the person that seems to have the most amount of integrity and whatever so- that is really <laughs>
0: And, and I'm the kind of the same way for me, it's, it's leadership and integrity, not, not which side of the street you're on. Right. It, I'd rather have leadership and integrity because you're going to take me more places than just if you're on the right, and you're going, it's like break the echo chamber, break the echo chamber and show me something I haven't seen. Show me something I haven't seen. And, and I'm going to start saying, Ooh, that's interested. Right. So, and that's kind of I'm right. So I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a great conversation and, and I really appreciate it. And love to have you on, uh, Anytime you want, basically, and I'll reach back out to you. So That's good. Thanks thank you so much. And I'm going to wrap this one up. And uh, as always, stay safe. Sage out.